Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you are now tuned in to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome. Again, like I said, we try to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. We have a lot of episodes in the bank right now if you want to go back and check some of those out. But today, we're going to be, this is kind of a little bit more of a specific uh, topic. We're talking about nailing for proximal humerus fractures. So treating proximal humerus fractures with intramedullary nailing. Now, if you do not have much of a background on proximal humerus fractures, please go and check out a previous episode that we did with Dr. Strelzo um, on proximal humerus fractures. Okay. Uh, there we kind of go into the basics, you know, the exam, the anatomy, classifying it, avian, and how to fix it. And we talk about the big high yield points on proximal humerus fractures, especially the testing points. But this episode here, again, is going to be a little bit more specific. We're talking about nailing for proximal humerus fractures. And who we have talking today or discussing this with us today is going to be Dr. Benjamin W. Sears. A little bit more about Dr. Sears. He actually received his Master's of Science in Pharmacology at Tulane, where I'm currently a resident. He then received his medical degree at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago. He also completed his residency at Loyola University Medical Center. He then did a fellowship in shoulder and elbow at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, and he also received some additional experience training in elbow surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and at the McFarlane Hand and Upper Limb Center in Ontario, Canada. So he has given uh, these talks on nailing proximal humerus fractures uh, before, and again, we really get into it. We have a accompanying YouTube video. If you would like to see some of the things that we are talking about, we kind of go over and say, this is what you're looking at on this image. This is what you're looking at on that image. And at the end, we actually go through a couple of cases. So if you haven't already, please go and check out the YouTube channel um, and go and subscribe to that. We went ahead and left a lot of the case discussions in on this audio podcast in case you want to listen to it. Um, but again, some of these may be best served looking at the video as well. But nonetheless, we hope you enjoy this episode and go ahead and hit the subscribe button again. And please just tell one person about this podcast. That would help us out a bunch. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Sears, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Happy to have you on and uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Um, this, is a, this is a great media for, for people interested in orthopedics in the, in the field and you've done a great job. So I'm really excited to be on. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. And today we're going to talk about a more specific topic, but I think a good one nonetheless. Uh, you know, we'll talk about, a little bit about uh, intramedullary fixation and proximal humerus fractures. But before we get to that, we always like to just kind of start off getting to know our guests just a little bit better. And, you know, I know you're a specialist in shoulder and elbow. And I guess there's a question I have for you is, you know, a lot of times we have residents that are listening to this, some medical students as well, and some that are kind of trying to choose between one specialty and the other. So what made you or what brought you towards, you know, the field of, of shoulder and elbow? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, my my journey kind of started as a lot of people and I went to Colorado State uh, University for college, played rugby and ended up having 
a pretty bad shoulder dislocation um, in college. Uh, had it had it fixed actually had underwent thermocapsular shrinkage because i'm oh, really back in the late 90s um it didn't get chondrolysis or anything but um that was like right when that was coming around and um ended up having an, a dislocating my other side and have the same thing and then came out again so an open bank heart after that so i had three surgeries but my the my surgeon uh is Dr. Dale Martin in Fort Collins at that time knew I had an interest in, in medicine and let me watch a bunch of surgeries with him. And so it kind of started from there. Orthopedics was definitely on the radar through med school, but, you know, just when you shoulder just made sense to me um, from a kind of a, a thinking about a perspective after all that. And I just gravitated towards that um, during residency and I had a, a really nice mentor, a loyal uh, medical center um, named Guido Mara, who's at Northwestern now, who is instrumental, kind of guided me through residency and to, towards shoulder and elbow, um, the field of shoulder, shoulder and elbow. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I've, I guess throughout the time I've seen a lot of it has been a little bit of mentors as well as personal experiences with drives, you know, and there's other things as well, but kind of drives some people to do one specialty versus another. And uh, yeah, I think it's cool. You know, so never is cool. I, I like so never cases, um, you know, hence a, a reason I'm going into sports. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, second question I have for you is a question that we've asked sometimes on this podcast that responses are always interesting and we haven't asked the past couple episodes. So I figured I'd, I'd bring it back. Uh, do you have any any books that you've gifted to others? You know, this could be a book on orthopedics. It could be a book that has nothing to do with orthopedics, personal development, or whatever it may be, but any book that you have gifted to others, or, you know, have said, Hey, you know, you should read this book, for example. Uh, yeah, you know, probably I don't have any, uh, great orthopedic books lately off the top of my mind, but I was talking to one of my good friends from med school about uh, one of my favorite books. It's, it's a book by James Cloud. It's called Taipan. Have you ever heard of that book? No, no, I haven't heard of that. What's what's this one about? It's a little bit of an old school book. I don't know if it's from 70s or 80s, but it, uh, he wrote a series of books about um, uh, Asia and uh, started out with this book called Shogun about uh, Japan back in the day. And then Taipan is um, the, the beginning of, of uh, Hong Kong in the um, uh, 1800s. And it's it's a fictional, but it's um, very well done. It's about... Uh, um the sea and the ocean and uh the um uh the basically sort of westernization in a way of 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 um hong kong and that part of asia but it has my very favorite ending of any book the last chapter is just amazing if you can get through the book um so uh that's what i that's probably the last book i i gifted but in a in a way of telling my friend to just buy it. <laughs> yeah, no, now now you have me wondering what the, what the last <laughs> chapter is. <laughs> I gotta check it out now. Yeah, you can build <laughs> yeah, it up. Your free time. It's, uh, it's only like <laughs> 800 pages or something. So. <laughs> no, I mean, it might be a good uh, a plane plane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have yeah. a long flight or something. <laughs> yeah, definitely book on tape for sure. Yeah. Oh man, and, and the last question I have for you. Or do you have any interest outside of the field of orthopedics? You know, it can be sports, movies, fishing, you know, whatever it may be. But any interests outside of the uh, field of orthopedics? 
Yeah, so I, I grew up in, in Colorado and uh, back in Denver. So if you live in Denver, you have to have lots of other um, uh, outside interests. So I'm an avid skier. Um, I like to uh, exercise on a daily basis. And I have three kids and, um, and a wife and my parents live in Denver and my friends from college live in Denver. So um, it's mostly out, outside, getting outside and enjoying all the stuff that the world has, has to offer from that perspective. Nice. Yeah. I went skiing for the first time, I think last <laughs> year. Didn't realize how much of a leg workout it was. You know, <laughs> I think my quads were sore the next day. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. It's just nice being outside, you know, on the mountains. It's, it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice sport. Yeah. And, and I think with that, we can probably transition to the topic of today. And, you know, we're talking a little bit about, proximal humerus fractures and intramedullary fixation. And, and kind of one thing I'd like to do is just to create a background um, just when we're talking about, you know, these proximal humerus fractures and fixing them, you know, we know there's many different options. You can plate it, you can nail it, you know, you can do a couple of different things, but at, at the core, what are some of the, you know, those basic principles uh, that you want to avoid, you know, when you're, when you're fixing proximal humerus fractures, like I guess kind of just the basics of you know what we need uh, to do or or fracture patterns or characteristics that need I guess special attention per se. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, these are traditionally very challenging cases. Um, we don't really know who to fix and who not to if you, on a really global scale. Um, uh, as you know, they're they're challenging to quantify and to classify really. Um, uh, you know, I think generally um, the real displaced fractures uh, that may not heal or heal in a really bad spot to put the bearing surface at risk, um, you want to, you know, be on the, on the lookout for that. And then it seems like, in my, at least in my opinion, um, uh, the real various fractures do, do quite poorly. So uh, where the head's tipped at a less than 110 degree neck shaft angle, those, those don't do very well. Um, by leaving them. However, there are some patients that surprise you that don't want surgery that do fine with it, even despite a lack of range of motion. So it's a, it's a challenging question to answer, but I, in, in my opinion, the displaced fractures, the, the greater tuberosities that are, are way off and the uh, grossly varus ones are probably the worst actors. Uh, okay. Okay. And I think I guess that sets a, a good, you know, presence and, you know, we are going to have these fractures and obviously the talk of the day or the topic is going to be intramedullary fixation. So just talking about nails for the humerus, can you kind of just take us through some background of humerus nailing, you know, what are, are different types of nails and, you know, what, what are some of the things you should be looking for? You know, for example, I go to these meetings and there'll be vendors and they'll have eight different nails and I'm trying to figure out what's what. So can you kind of take us through some of the, the history of just, you know, intramedullary nail fixation for humerus? Sure. Is it okay if I kind of scroll through these slides for that? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So this is a talk I gave a couple of years ago at um, one of the alumni meetings, but I uh, kind of went through a lot of the uh, history you know, of nailing and, and some of our cases and I'll just kind of scroll through. So I don't have any disclosures that are relevant to this topic. Um, but I guess, you know, starting out and I mean, you and I sort of shared, um, the experience that I had of nailing and my, my training was, was what, what Dick has shows here zero. 
um, back, you know, before I, I was out on my own, Nailing was basically seen as a the work of the devil, um, and uh, and that everyone did poorly, and uh, we were just thought, taught that no one should get an out outside of those you know rare pathologic humeral shaft fracture uh, or or pending uh, humeral fractures, shaft fractures. Um, but the real probably the real reason for that, and what my experience is been going through the, the history and my own having my own cases is that the hit the, these started out uh, with a, a design and technology that were quite poor and it kind of just made people think that the that the whole concept was a failure so um you know looking through the first generation which basically means you're just jamming some pins from the uh down the humeral shaft and hoping that it works and you know, these are, you know, the, the humerus, there's a lot of rotation and torsional um, biomechanics to the, to the fracture. And these rush rods or Simon pins, they just didn't have any ability to really control rotation or fracture fragments. And these patients are uh, typically quite osteo, osteoporotic or penic. So they're just pulling out and, um, and patients did typically pretty poorly with that. Um, so the second generation at least had some structure to um, to the to the it was an actual nail kind of similar to what what you what you put in the femur, um, but the worry, at least for these designers, what I am what I think is that they were so worried about violating the humeral head that they thought, okay, let's just put the nail down the lateral aspect of the of the proximal humerus, and unfortunately, what that did is it just put this right down the middle of the um, uh, cuff insertion on tuberosity. And so all these patients had um, had pain, uh, shoulder pain that was really cuff-based, if anything. Um, this also goes through the, can go through the fracture segment as well. Uh, and so fixing the, the, the humerus was hard. Um, and uh, if you look at the literature of these, uh, by over 60 or 70% of patients in the literature were having shoulder pain. Um, the other problem with, with these, and these are some, just some x-rays I've actually gathered from my own clinic of just horrible looking cases. Well, these are rough. <laughs> They're yeah, okay. just bad, you know, like where do you put the nail, how deep um, the screws are falling out because they can't get fixation in the tuberosity. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, if you have a series of these and this is all, you know, then yeah, it seems like a pretty subpar option for patients. Um, so this is the history until about 10 or 12 years ago where the third generation nail, um, was designed. And fortunately the designers of, of these, of these nails took all that into consideration. So the current nail design, and I'm sorry to put these, um, the product names up there. I don't mean to like in, invoke any industry in this. But, um, <laughs> no worries. Okay, good. Um, but uh, uh, now now the nails are, they're, they're designed as being straight nails. So you don't go through the cuff insertion uh, or the, on the tuberosity. They're smaller. So the footprint and the, and the, and the cartilage is, is diminished. And I think what's really cool um, is that there's a, a poly bushing approximately in, in these. So when you when you secure your tuberosity fixation, it, it actually screws into the nail into these poly bushings. 
and you get fixation through that. So you don't have to rely on the bone. Um, mm, okay. And then uh, some of the newer designs have really nice extramedullary guides. And even one of the company has one that you can even use with long nails. So putting in your distal interlocks um, or your, you know, interfrags are, are so much easier. So the designs really helped advance the improvement and, and making us a reliable, more, much more reliable option for, for, for patients. Yeah. So, so the first generations were more just to rise and the second are the ones that had a a proximal lateral bend and in, in, in again those are kind of inserted right through the cuff so that was giving people a lot of shoulder pain and, and dysfunction and now these nails again are have a straight nail design and a small diameter and then again those those poly bushings and that the, the that the screw itself screws into the nail correct that's what we're saying that's exactly right yeah it's actually gets fixation in the nail not the bone Okay. And so I guess one of the things, one of the main questions we'll have is, so what, what is um, like, what's the difference between nailing versus plating? You know, why not plate a lot of these fractures or versus nail? Like what's the difference between these two different types of uh, fixation for these fractures? Yeah, there's a lot of, di- uh, a lot of different concepts between a, a nail, nail and a plate. And I think that's where um, some people that are always players would always, would always play, um, some of the, some of the thought is, um, and I, I have the slide, I think on this in a few, yeah, yeah. go for it. Find it. This is just, first of all, so yeah, this is just looking at some outcome, you know, it's a little bit of cherry picking. I, I agree, but, uh, you know, just looking at some of the data of plate fixation, uh, you, uh, plates are not benign by any stretch. Then some of these, uh, plates, you know, in the literature have complication rates that are high. This, uh, this 2009 study um, showed a 34% complication rate, which is mostly like intraarticular screw position or reoperation. And then this, uh, there's a 2017 study showed that plates had a 45% complica- complication rate from, you know, it's a lot of like uh, penetration of the screws in the articular surface and some AVN uh, as well as some uh, shoulder pain. Um, uh, uh, there was a, there's been a bunch of comparison studies between nails and plates. Um, and, uh, the, um, it, I think what it's, what they ultimately show this one from 2011 showed that the plate complication rate was, was much higher, but interestingly enough, there was no difference between the groups in terms of subjective scores at three years, but, you know, there are two different concepts and it's kind of a little bit of apples to oranges in terms of like comparing them. Um, in my opinion, some of the advantages and differences of fixing it with a, a nail versus a plate, um, really the first one is you just don't have to do as much surgical dissection. So the, the theory with behind that is that you're going to preserve the blood supply to the proximal humerus, both the head, um, the tuberosities, and, and the surgical neck. And it's because you're putting the nail from the top down. So you're not violating the, the, the circuflex vessels around the uh, proximal humerus. Um, so you don't have to open it up. You don't have to do a surgical dissection and you don't have to put the plate along the lateral aspect of the proximal humerus, which is where some of the important blood supply lies. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. And, and one of the things that I guess they, they teach a lot or, or we hear a lot, I know the, 
the thought process is before we used to think that most of the blood supply comes from the anterior circumflex arteries. And now we're, some are saying that it's coming from the posterior circumflex arteries. And I, I guess I don't know, this is a question is like theoretically, you know, if you're doing an, you know, a delta pec approach, you may go through some of the anterior blood supply. But do you do you also get some of the posterior supply if you're plating just laterally, you know, like with a deltoid split? Are you are you worried about getting any any of that supply? Yeah, I think so, because there's a, a fair amount of anastomosis. I mean, it's, a, you know, there's collateral circulation and. Um, you know, Gerber described this one important vessel. Um, I think it was, he, this was like 2007 or, or 11 or so, but there's a, um, there's an anastomosis between the deltoid thoracic, um, acromial artery to the anterior lateral, uh, anterior circumflex artery. And you'll see that if you, if you're doing a total shoulder, when you do next time you do one, you do the delta pectoral approach at the anterior aspect of the of the deltoid insertion just lateral to the uh, pec major there's a there's this artery there and it if you don't electrocauterize it during those surgeries it bleeds like stink and yeah. that that artery we think is a, is pretty important for the proximal humerus well when you do a plate that plate goes basically right down where that artery is and you have to you know violate that that particular blood blood supply so does that contribute you know, to uh, diminishing the blood supply of the proximal humerus with plating? I mean, it probably does to a degree, but it's never been quantified. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I'm, I'm going to look for that artery <laughs> next yeah. time I go. Next time I'm doing a total shoulder. And, and so is there any difference, I guess, biomechanic-wise when you're looking at nails and, you know, place? But I guess we're more focusing on nails. So when you're looking at nails, anything biomechanically that's important to understand, I guess, conceptualize when we're thinking of how we're, you know, treating these with nails? Uh, yeah, so the literature is all over the place uh, on this. There are some that say nails are better or um, plates are better. You know, it's all kind of based, I think, the methodology. I think the one um, the, the one real advantage of the nail is that, well, there's two, I guess it's medialized. So you're closer to the, the calcar. And then you also gain a point of fixation at the very top of the nail. If you don't insert it too deep, that top of the nail helps prevent the humeral head from tipping into varus. And it's called a fifth point of fixation. Um, there was an interesting meta-analysis done, uh, JOT by uh, young in 2015, they looked at 250 patients, about that many, just looking at the loss, uh, what's the biggest risk of loss of post-operative reduction? And they found four variables that matter. Osteoporosis, uh, varus displacement when you start when the, of the fracture under 110 degrees, medial comminution, and then insufficient medial calcar fixation. And to me, the nail does a better job of of addressing those types of issues than uh, a laterally base plate and primary because you're medializing it and you're, you have this fifth point of fixation to help with the, the cow car. Yeah. And I guess one question that I have conceptual wise is, you know, in my head, like when you think about if you're plating uh, you think about, you know, screw cut out or penetrance, or you think, you know, like you have, I guess, interop, you think you have, you know, your screw lengths are great. You know, you check your fluoro, and then some months later, the head collapses and screws penetrate from there. 
that in your experience do you see anything similar like that with the with the nails like you have a good you know you're you're you've put your nail in and you have a good point it's not necessarily too proud but then you may get some collapse and the nail becomes proud is that something that you ever see yeah that that can certainly happen um without question uh i think the advantage at least of one of the companies, um, not all the companies that have the nail, the third generation, but one of the companies has the, the two rusty screw fixation that's not, not pointed towards the head. So it's pointed basically from anterior to lateral, uh, I'm sorry, anterior to posterior, or post, really posterior to anterior. So if there is collapse, you really don't see that um, head, like, you know, intraarticular head penetration of the screw. Right. Um, so that, that's helpful. Um, and then what I've done, because that's certainly a, a concern is, uh, there is a calcar screw that is similar to the plate. So you can put that in as a kickstand, but you can also, you can do this with a plate, but you can inject some of these newer bone grafts that are basically calcium phosphate that will hard, you can put it right in the metastasis, right where the, where the combination is that will hard, hardens in, you know, 20 minutes to one day to the, to, to the strength of a um, cortical bone. And that, that acts as a nice, um, a, like a, a nice, almost new screw or fixate or almost cement fixation in the metastasis that, you know, then becomes bone over time. Is that like some of the stuff, um, I'm like montage, not, not, no, no names. I'm not getting paid by anybody. <laughs> Is that like some of that, that type of material? Yeah, it's a little bit. I mean, I'm not getting paid. I'll, I'll just, I'll just say names because it makes it easier for everyone. But yeah. Norion is uh, the Synthes one and uh, Prodence is the right medical one. But okay. You know, you basically inject it as, uh, you know, it's like runny liquid and then it just hardens wherever you want. So you can do it, you know, even percutaneously. Uh, and you can just put okay. it right into that area that they, that the patient needs. Oh, okay, cool. And, and another question I have is I get, so what, what patients, I guess, in your, in your practice are indicated for intramedullary uh, nail fixation? You know, like, you know, this patient comes in, you say, okay, that's the one that we should that we should uh, that we should nail versus uh, maybe that we we should probably do something else with this patient. I guess your kind of indications. Yeah, I, so far we still are treating most patients not uh, non operatively, um, of course. Um, however, I feel like my indications for nailing have widened a little bit um, because I've had I feel like I've had success and I can give patients uh, uh, a, a good result with it. So. Um, I, I don't like the patients that have tipped into varus quite a bit. Um, certainly don't like if there, if there's a wide, a wide displacement of either the greater tuberosity or the, um, or the neck shaft, if it's a two part, um, uh, if, uh, you know, so I say this is rough, but probably a varus displacement, certainly under 110, but maybe 120, you consider it, you certainly take into, uh, individual patients, you know, who's, who's playing tennis, who's, you know, in a wheelchair, all that matters. Right. Um, we, myself, my partner have been, we do very few reverse for fracture. Um, although there's, uh, you know, if it's, really smashed head split, um, uh, tuberosity is in a million pieces and they're in their low demand. That's, that'd probably be uh, a reverse for fracture. Um, but, uh, my, my 
go to is probably the nail over some of the other surgical options. Okay. And can you, you know, so we had this patient, you know, we, we see them, they have a proximal humerus fracture and we've decided to go ahead, you know, and proceed with intramedullary nailing. Can you kind of take us through, you know, your setup, you know, how you get your imaging. And for those that are listening on the audio podcast, we also have a video on YouTube if you'd like to check it out and see some of the things that we're talking about. We will try to describe everything as best as we can for audio, but can you kind of take us through some of uh, kind of how you set these patients up, how you get your imaging and what's important to be able to uh, interpret the imaging? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, um, so uh, my own kind of evolution of, um, of, of doing nail, you know, I didn't, I never did it um, as a resident or fellow. And then, um, when I came to Denver, it's not my current partner now, but uh, my partner back then, Armand Hotsadakis, who helped develop the nail, told me about it, and I was uh, skeptical. But then I, I did um, a couple cases early on where it was a displaced two-part fracture, and I plated them. I did a delta-pec approach. I wasn't great at getting imaging, and I, I put the plate on. I felt like I got it fixed properly, but then in you know, post-op x-rays, it was still, the head was displaced from the shaft by, you know, 50, 60%. It was, it was uh, humbling. And, um, uh, and so I, I kind of developed a way of, of taking images that helped. And then I thought, yeah, well, the nail, if you put it in right, it's going to shish kebab those fragments and it's going to, you, you have to basically put it in right. Um, or you have to get those pieces reduced to put it in right. So, um, so that was kind of my evolution and, and how I kind of des, or developed and have, how's the, has the technique has developed for myself. Um, my, my indications, ideal indications are um, a displaced two-part fracture is the best place for this, for the nail. Uh, it works great for those. You can typically put in percutaneously. So that's why I put the a younger patient who tip off, off almost all of those are the knee surgery are displaced two parts. So you can put it through like tiny little portals, just like a scope. Um, and it also works great for patients with poor bone quality, but um, I have some, this is my setup here. So uh, this is a case uh, we did a couple of years ago. Um, and I like to put the patient in a beach chair position with about 40, 30 to 40 degrees of inclination. That helps with imaging. Um, and I always have the CRM come in from the contrail side uh, with a plate. When you're manipulating it, you're moving the arm all around um, to get the plate in the right spot or to deal with deltoid tensioning, et cetera. But this one with the nail, you just put the arm in an arm holder and you put it in the gunslinger neutral position and it stays in there the whole case. And if you do that, you can really get reproducible images of the of the head segment that you can interpret. Um, uh, and uh, because they they look just like the ones you get in the office. Um, so yeah, just talking about this, guys, I feel like it's so important. Uh, this was this was really a key of my own learning experience. So these are the images that I want to get in the operating room. Um, you want to get a gracie view and a lateral view. So, and you want to get reproduced images that you see all the time in the clinic that your brain can just interpret. Yes, it's in the right spot or no, it's in the, not in the right spot. So these are two images from my office that, you know, I get a, all the time, but the proximal humerus just internally rotated and a, it's a lateral kind of a lateral view on the bottom and then a, a gracie view on the top. 
Um, this is my son, William. And <laughs> Love it. <laughs> this is a bone that I basically probably got off the dark web. I, I, I got it from India. It was sent to me. It's a real human humorous. <laughs> nice. I like it. It's probably totally sketchy. It's like a great. <laughs> <laughs> but I just, I wanted to, um, so I, I got this little wire and I wrapped it around the key landmarks. And I taped it. It looks kind of interesting there, but I went and then I went to the floral suite and took a bunch of x-rays with those that wire around the key image, key uh, anatomic uh, parts of the of the proximal humerus, and um, and then took some X-rays. So these are these are the two X-rays I want to reproduce in the operating room. So the Gracie view uh, with uh, thirty degrees of external rotation, and then a lateral view, which we've termed as the pre uh, precipice view, because kind of like the side of a mountain. Okay, and you can see uh, the bicipital groove the greater tuberosities outlined with the wire. And then, um, and this was 40 degrees of internal rotation and 50 degrees of inferior tilt. But also you see the infraspinatus tubercle and the teres minor tubercle, it's where those tendons insert. That bone is very, is some of the best bone of the proximal humerus. So if you can find that and you can isolate it, you can fix the, the tuberosity in those spots and it usually will be helpful for fixation. Okay. So, um, uh, so basically that's, that's the imaging part that I, I like, and there's some examples, uh, case examples using this, but every case I just get these two views. So the CRM comes in from the contrail side, you get a gracie view and you figure it out before the case starts and you get a lateral view and you're just basically going back and forth between those views with the arm, just staying in the gunslinger position. Yeah. So with the Gracie, I mean, so you just kind of, in order to get a lateral, you just have the C arm, just see over a little bit and it's not necessarily, Oh yeah. You just have them kind of just see over um, as in see towards you. And that's how you're getting the lateral view. And then your Gracie, you're it's kind of like AP, but not really, uh, but they're kind of, they just come straight in from the other side with a little bit of tilt. Is that right? That's right. You kind of, so they come from the other, other side and they're, they're, the C arm tilt is matching the tilt of the bed. And then you just basically have them, um, yeah, orbit um, uh, towards them you know, for the Gracie view, uh, about 30 degrees roughly. And then over the top of the patient for the lateral view, which is about roughly 40 degrees, 30 to 40 degrees. Okay. And, and so we know with these, you know, Imaging very important. You know, once you, you once you have you know the patient positioned, prepped, and ready, and you know we've gotten the appropriate imaging. Can you take us through the ideal starting point? We know that's you know super important when we're nailing things with dicks, especially when we're nailing hips or femurs, and I assume very the same thing when we're nailing humeruses. So, can you take us through what the ideal starting point is and what we should be looking for on X-rays? Yeah, so th I think this is probably one of the hardest parts of getting started um, with uh, with nailing is where do you start? I mean, there, um, there's not much data on that and, and how to do it. Um, so we, we, we did a study on this and it's published in um, JSCS International, but uh, we wanted to determine what would be the ideal starting point. So, uh, you know, I thought this study was interesting. It, it kind of answers that to a degree. Um, I'll just go through it real quick just to highlight yeah. Um, so we want we thought that a more immediate starting point, so starting in the in the articular cartilage rather than in the cuff insertion would be safer. Um, 
So we uh, got 10, 10 cadavers and we basically grouped them into two groups. Uh, we And we placed the nail in all those um, all those cadavers. I mean, there's no fracture, there's just like sawbones basically. Um, and so the first group, we placed the guy pen either um, medial or through the CA ligament. So where that in, in, inserts on, on the shoulder or it was lateral to the CA ligament. So CA ligament was kind of our key of medial versus lateral. And then we just did a, a big anatomic analysis and radiographic analysis. Um, so this is a picture of that, of that study. Um, the guide pin is going to the CA ligament uh, as it um, comes off the acromion. Uh, and you can kind of see, well, this is what the, you know, the deltoid um, released. Right, what it looks like. This is uh, one of uh, Dr. Garagus and my co-fellows from back in the day, Peter Johnson, who's in Maryland, who did all the um, imaging. But this is the C-arm, so we imaged the, um, the hand or the arm. And uh, what we found is if, you, if your starting point in terms of where the guide pen goes in is medial to the CA ligament or through the CA ligament, you have a safer distance from the axillary nerve with your screw fixation proximally. Um, you have uh, tuberosity screw fixation that's closer to those tubercles that are so important. And you have a wider spread of the of these um, interlocked screws proximally. Um, so you get better bone coverage by placing the, uh, the nail um, medial or through the CA ligament. Um, in terms of the rotator cuff, you know, that's the big problem with the bent nails is, is it violates the cuff. So with the medial, uh, medial specimens, all of them went through muscle and that's not a problem. Even a, a, a nail, it's, you know, uh, 10 millimeters. I mean, we put an eight millimeter uh, cannula through the infraspinatus every shoulder scope we do basically. Um, so as long as it goes through the muscle, it's not a problem. Laterally, lateral to the CA ligament, we actually had two patients or two of these specimens that had a, a full cuff tendon uh, disruption, which is a problem. Um, and then we okay. could try to correlate this to like a starting point from a radiographic perspective. Um, and what we found the, the medial st uh, group with the medial starting point, if you um, if you look at the width of the, of the greater tuberosity, and then you take that exact width and, um, and go medial to the lateral margin of the, of the articular side of the surface of the humeral head, and you start there, that is ideal starting point on the, on the Gracie view. Um, and then you want to be right in the middle on the, uh, on the precipice or lateral view. Now, a question I had, because we, <laughs> Sonny and I were doing this a, a little while back, and we were getting somewhat frustrated trying to get a starting point because the acromion, I guess, was kind of stopping us or, or blocking our way. So we had to try to maneuver the arm and or adduct the proximal segment to get a good starting point. Do you ever run into that problem? Or if you do, do you have any tips or tricks to not run into that problem? <laughs> No, I'm glad you brought that up because, yes, yeah, you know, this is 10 specimens. It's not like uh, the real world, of course. Um, so uh, for so when that happens and it's not not certainly not unheard of for sure, I'll try and I'll see if I can extend the arm a little bit further without disrupting the um, the reduction. Um, that's the that's the most ideal. And that works most of the time. The other two options you have are to either push the the posterior humerus forward 
So just manually push it forward so you can clear the chromium. Um, and there are some patients you just have to go through Nervisor's portal, which is, right. you know, me, which is medial to the uh, chromium basically. Um, and that, that, that works some, that works as well too. It just, it, that puts the starting point pretty far medial, but it's a good, it's a good, um, bailout if you need to. You know, I, I want to give my, myself a little pat on the back because that was one of my suggestions. There you go. And, uh, <laughs> and our attorney was like, all right, we're getting a little sportsy here. I was like, hey, you know, it's just a thought. <laughs> you know, the trauma guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, man. So um, that, you know, starting point makes sense. Now, what about some of our, our proximal interlocking screws you you are is there an ideal placement for those you know you talked a little bit earlier about you know getting screw fixation into the you know tuberosities and you know what any any tips or tricks for that or where does it, where, where should they end up at yeah so i mean so i think this is your ideal um position of the of the nail so uh i always try and get this particular nail design which was also part of the um, uh, part of the uh, study that we that we did. Uh, it has two screws that can go in the tuberosity, one in the lesser and one in the cow car. So if you can um, optimally, if you can get the what's called the greater tuber, tuberosity high screw at the level of the infraspinatus tubercle, that's ideal. And then the greater uh, low should be at the level of the teres tubercle. Um, and that that would that usually positions your nail depth at a, an appropriate depth depth as well. Oh, okay. Okay. And one other question, short nail versus long nail. Do you always go short nail or do you ever have an indication for a long nail? If the, I guess, if, you know, if there's just a spiral that, that goes a little distal or, you know, what are you doing a short nail versus a long nail? Uh, yeah, there's, I mean, short nail for the most part works for almost all these, pro, these uh, proximal humerus fractures. Uh, okay. This nail, I think is 130 uh, millimeters in length. So if there's any, if it kind of extends into the proximal diapsis uh, and you're worried at all, I would, I would just go to a, a, a longer nail. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. And, and so if you want, you want to kind of want to walk us through some, I know we have some slides with some cases here. You want to just walk us through some, uh, some of these cases and I guess kind of high important ports you know, um, of, of fixing these or things, you know, things that we, that we need to know. And, and do, uh, one more thing, do most of these nails have a design where you can put a cow car screw in? Do you put that in almost every time or just sometimes? Yeah, that, I mean, that, I think, uh, that's, I don't know if it's controversial, but people don't really, I, I always put it in. I just feel okay. like the varus collapse is such a problem. Um, even for younger people with good bone, it's easy to put it in. That screw, uh, interestingly, interestingly enough, is a little bit is the closest screw to the axillary nerve. So, one of the, the critiques might be, well, are are you violating the axillary nerve uh, with that screw, um, or are you risking it? Um, I personally have not ever seen an axillary nerve documented injury from that screw. Um, and you put it in, you spread, and you get it down. Um, but I, I always put the screw in. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, if you want to, if you are, uh, would like to walk us through some of these cases, you know, we can go through a couple of them and talk about the the high points of, you know, what was important and what we got. Sure. Um, so this is the, this is um, 
a 22 year old female, great bone, but you know, here in Colorado, this is the, the most 22 year olds who have a proximal humerus fracture we're doing this. She was snowboarding. Um, you know, it's, a uh, you know, she's quite a bit of a uh, varus. It's a little bit, you know, this old, uh, to the, uh, to the neck, but, uh, you know, you just, young active people, I tend to have a lower threshold for, for doing stuff for, for somebody like this. Um, so, so yeah, so she elected to have surgery, uh, for her, um, you could basically just pull traction on the arm and it reduced it. Okay. Um, so you just pull a little bit of, of gentle traction. You don't even have to like, uh, you know, get it in the right spot. Unfortunately, um, these, uh, this is a different, um, where the images is a little bit different case where I, I'm actually reducing it with the cob, but it's showing that, you know, this is the Gracie view. This is the position of the C arm. And this is what you want your brain to think about when you're seeing this um, with the Gracie view on the bottom, right? Where you have, you know, you see the tuberosity, it's where you see it, you're seeing it all the time. So, you know, you know, you're not getting fooled. So this is a starting point for her. It's right through the humeral head. It's about um, a greater tuberosities width medial to the lateral margin of the articular cartilage. This is the uh, Y lateral that precipice view. So it's coming over the top about 40 degrees. And um, that's the starting point from over the top. Uh, and again, trying to recreate that, uh, that X-ray on the bottom. Um, so at five weeks, you know, these show tremendous healing uh, early on, which is, which was one of the other things or reasons why I liked it so much. I mean, in five weeks, you're already seeing a fair amount of callus yeah. around, around the fracture. That's the depth. Um, she's moving it at five weeks. Um, can't even see the incisions. And then, uh, you know, six months, it's already remodeled. Yeah, it looks good. And uh, that's her at six months. And again, no incisions. So, um, so, you know, that for a young person with a two parts, a home run, it's a slam dunk, you know, you're high fiving the patient three weeks. It's awesome. Um, uh, this is probably the more common, you know, this 58 year old, she's active, but not like that. And, you know, she's fallen tipped into varus. Um, uh, you know, it's a two, it's another two part, uh, it's probably some extension in the tuberosity, but for the most part, a two part. And, um, this is for her, this is how we did it. Um, CRM's coming from the other side and you can make a little stab incision laterally and, uh, it's a little bit lateral anterior and you can put a cob or a joker or any instrument into the, through the fracture into the head and really manipulate the head out of varus or out of retroversion. Um, and so, uh, that's how, you know, that's how we were able to reduce her just percutaneously. And a lot of times it just comes right over. Um, I would say if it's an osteoporotic older patient, you got to be careful just jamming in the head and pulling it back. You almost want to put a cob or something across to the medial fracture and lift the head out instead of jamming mm -hmm. it in there. Cause you can sometimes penetrate the head, but for her, it was easy to just manipulate it on both the, uh, Gracie and the, and the lateral. Okay. And then, you know, there's our ideal starting point again on AP and lateral and then, um, holding the reduction. And then here's our, our nail after we put it in this particular nail design that you can tell the depth because it's the bottom part of the, um, of the indention proximally. 
And yep. so usually you want to get it, you know, you don't want to proud it, of course, but you don't want it too deep either. Um, and for her, if you look at the cow car screw, that's exactly where you want it. That thing is a, a complete kickstand for her. Right. And, and just to reiterate on our interlocks, again, ideally we wanted one of them, one of our screws to be kind of at the level of the, of the greater tuberosity um, at the level of the infraspinatus tubercle, and then another one at the level of the teres tubercle, and then just, you know, a lesser tuberosity screw, which it looks like you have, you know, right here on this, uh, on this image. And distally, these are just, you know, just some interlocking. Is it one or two distally? Do you, or does it, you know, if it's just more unstable, you just go with two? Yeah, it's a good question. This one, this nail is designed at the distal screw is a more proximal one. Um, if you just put that in, it can collapse or, or settle. Um, and I don't know if that matters as much in the proximal, proximal humerus as it, it certainly matters with subtrochs or intertrochs, you know, um, where it settles. Uh, for the most part, I've just been putting in two to help with rotation because look at how wide the canal is compared to the nail and there's some rotational maybe issues but in theory if you could let it settle but you know you just try and i just try and get it anatomic and, and fix it that way okay all right sounds good good case um and then this was her you know 12 weeks out and she's got some motion um and uh you know uh we did this all percutaneously as well so um, this is, I mean, I put four part, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's not a real four part where the, the pieces are all over the place, but it's, you know, it involves the, the, it involves the head falling into varus. Um, this is a labor, uh, the greater's involved, the, the lesser's involved on the CT, which I didn't show, but this is how you kind of do these. You can do this all percutaneously as well. And, um, this is pulling the head out of out of varus, uh, kind of over reducing the head with a. This is a joker, and then we use a ball spike pusher to kind of manipulate the greater tuberosity uh, a little bit in better position, and then under you kind of like push it under the head. But you can do this um, opercutaneously without violating the blood supply as well. Okay. Um, so with that one, you just had a, a small incision laterally, and then obviously um, superiorly. That's where you're going through with the with the not joker uh ball spike pusher and and then you're holding those in place while you're getting your starting point as well is that right that's right so we pin we, oh, we pin it yeah pin those um i would say uh i think this one we did fine with a perk approach but uh over the last couple of years i've um i kind of op- uh has have been less hesitant to open up the, for the greater tuberosity and to do that you do an anterior uh, or a lateral acromial incision or approach, kind of like an open rotator cuff. So you're not violating, you're not doing a deltoid pack or violating the blood supply, but you can you can split the the deltoid, find, uh, get the tuberosity into a really nice spot and, and pin it, and not violate the um, not violate the uh, blood supply at all. It, it is hard to interpret where the greater tuberosity is at times when you do it percutaneously and get in the right spot. Um, but this one, you know, then we did, when we were able to pin it and, um, uh, those are the, you know, we use two drill, I use these two drill bits to hold it. That's at the Terry's, uh, tubercle and the infra tubercle. And then, um, this is with the nail in and then we, we injected graft him, grafted him. I think, let's see here. Yeah. You can kind of see, um, on the top, uh, view, there's some 
a little density in the yeah I see yeah and that's uh that's that bone graft so you know i think what are the you know with you know there are a lot of different techniques different procedures to fix many things but what are some of the i guess you could say the downfalls or the things that you need to that you should worry about when when you're nailing you know when you're when you're nailing these uh these proximal humerus fractures uh i think uh, you gotta really really get the nail uh height right if it's too deep you'll lose fixation um you'll you'll lose that fifth point but you also lose some of the fixation of the of the calcar screw and the tubero and the uh, tuberosity screws so that's definitely a pitfall um some people will try and do this through a delta pectoral approach because that's just what we're used to but it really it's really hard to get the the starting point um posterior enough when you do that so all these starting points even if you open it are done through a little little poke hole um where you want you know, it just basically put the guide pin in percutaneously to the right spot and make maybe a one centimeter incision and uh, put the nail in percutaneously, even if you're doing any other approach, open approach to it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I guess sacrificing tuberosity reduction uh, for, you know, because of what you're dealing with the nail. So, I mean, if there's a less tuberosity that's off, you can do a small delta pectoral approach and, and put that in the right spot. Or, and then also do a, a posterior approach to a grader that's way off. And you have, you can, you're not obligated to go all through one approach of the delta pectoral. Ah, okay. No, I don't think I've seen the posterior approach to the tuberosity, but I, yeah, I've seen what you're talking about, with, you know, delta split and obviously the, the delta pec approach. And I, I know you had a couple more cases here we could, we could go through. I know you had some more sure. complex. Um, yeah, there's some more uh, kind of interesting cases uh this is a young guy i don't you know it's not too displaced he wanted to ski uh on the lateral view it's not a great x-ray but he's kind of tilted posteriorly so um he ended up having just a percutaneously placed down he was snowboarding in six weeks um just a couple other quick younger people cases uh, i feel like they're interesting uh, a combination approximately um, this was the, this is the shortest lawn nail, uh, this, uh, company has, it's about okay. 210 centimeters or so. So, um, uh, for somebody like that, I, it was, I would, you know, this type of a fracture pattern, I would do a, a short lawn nail. Right. Um, and then that was her cosmesis. Um, that's good. So, you know, uh, here's, you know, an older patient, she's got medical issues, prednisone, osteoporosis, she's on COPD, but. You know, she's way embarrassed. She's got calcar comminution and disruption. So this is the this is the bad actor. I feel like with a, a plate, it's hard to it's hard to like hold her in that position. Um, that's that was my experience from uh, training. Uh, this is two years out. So that white, she got injected with some real calcium phosphate that takes a long time to go away. The newer stuff does not, but um, she healed she healed great, and uh, she that was all done percutaneously as well. Um, here's another one, 61 year old female. So she's a bone marrow transplant, prednisone, osteoporosis, way embarrassed. Um, you know, that these are, these can be challenging. And, uh, she had a place percutaneously with grafting as well in the canal or in the metaphysis. So I really feel like that helps prevent the uh, varus collapse. Mm. 
um, six weeks. Is it is the graph stuff? Is that ex, is that expensive? This uh, I guess just personal. This is a quick like uh, yeah. just for my own knowledge. <laughs> is that is that expensive? Or I've been it... told it's not very okay. expensive. Um, but I I couldn't quote a price or anything. But I it's not. Yeah, yeah, no it's not like um some of these you know spine things or <laughs> right yeah those, those yeah. cost some money. And, and so for a lot of these that you're showing, it looks like, you know, you can kind of use a Jake and try to percutaneously lift the head back on top of the, on top of the segment. And then for your more commuted ones, you're using a different combination of, uh, of, you know, using a, a joker or a ball spike pusher or a little mini open approach and using wires to hold it in place and, and then nail um, any any other techniques or tips or tricks that you that you may have for when we're when we're nailing these proximal humerus fractures? I'm hoping you know people listen to this and they're like, oh, okay, you know, maybe that may be something <laughs> we can try or go to a course or try it out in a lab somewhere first, and then uh, you know, try it out on a patient. Yeah, you know, I think well, below had a nice study a couple of year a uh, year or two ago talking about how to reduce it with the nail um, and where to put the nail, if it's in varus or valgus, uh, uh, the nail can be helpful. The more medial you put the starting point will help kind of tip it posteriorly or in the, in the varus. But I, my personal opinion is I've had it. It's that's a, that's too nuanced. Like I like to just get it in the right spot and, um, and then put the nail on around it. And, um, as long as you are pinning it using Steinman pins as joysticks, uh, using traction on the arm through the arm holder, um, uh, and then hold, you know, getting in the right spot on, on both AP and lateral imaging with the Joker and holding it there while you put the, the implant in has been helpful. I always, there's, you know, you can, the starting hole for this, you can use an awl where you kind of cord out or a reamer. I always put the reamer on drill. So you're just drilling through it. You're not pushing down on, on the head. That's been helpful too. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. And, and I guess long-term follow-up or the patients that you've had follow-up again, obviously this one, 18 months for the most part, these patients are doing well. Uh, any, any complications or anything that, you know, you should know for in the, you know, the long-term, have you had a, a you know, reoperate on any of these patients or anything? Oh yeah, absolutely. So we, um, we collect our data on this. We have about 110 people or so with uh, one year follow-up and a uh, number with two year and five year and a couple of seven year. Um, the reoperation rate, at least in our uh, office uh, for those 110 or so patients in a year out is about, I'm just quite off the top of my head, but about 13 to 15%. So um, most of the complications are stiffness. Uh, we're in terms of like reoperation rate, where you got to go in and do an arscopic or re, um, capsule release or, or remove a, a prominent screw. We've had um, our AVN rates about three to 4% that required, you know, conversion to a re reverse. And there's a couple, there are some patients, maybe two that had arthritis that needed conversion to an arthroplasty. So um, it's certainly not perfect, but um, I, I think it, I, it, I think it gives patients a good option. Right. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Dr. Sears, I think this has been um, you know, great talk and, you know, learn a lot about nailing proximal humerus fractures. And I know we have a video of kind of going through some of the floor shots I could play really quick if we want to uh, talk about that. And, and before we wrap up here. 
Yeah, that'd be great. All right, great. So let's uh, we can touch base and uh, we can go through some of these uh, some of these floral shots and, and you know just kind of almost done a story of the case or, and how you did it. So uh, let's go play here. Yeah, so this is a case. These are all consecutive floor shots of a case where I just had our um, C-Arm um, Tech just uh, save all these. And this is just kind of almost like a, a black and white movie of it, I guess. You know, like I just was scrolling through, the, uh, through these uh, sequential uh, images. And um, uh, this kind of, I guess, tells us the story of the, of the, of the nail. This is a patient with the humeral shaft fracture. Okay. Um, so she's got some underlying arthritis of the, of the head, which is a, I mean, I guess a concern. She had no history of shoulder pain per patient, but she definitely have a, has arthritis. You couldn't really do an arthroplasty, at least in my opinion, because it's too distal. Um, so we wanted to fix it with a nail and get that fixed so she could use it. She tried bracing for about two weeks and just failed miserably. Her skin was just sloughing. It was, it was not working. So, um, these are a little bit uh, more nuance where it's a humeral shaft fracture. You're trying to, we want the perfect starting point proximally, and then we got to get it into the distal, um, into the distal portion or piece. It's really hard to get it without just opening up a little tiny bit. It's not like, uh, I feel like it's harder than the, um, than the, uh, than the, than the femoral, like the femoral the femur. fractures. Yeah. Right. This, this is that finger device. You'd probably use that for the, the femurs and uh, yeah. it's helpful to get it in. And I think I got it in, but the fracture was just so displaced. We ended up putting a, a open and put a little clamp on it. So then we're like struggling here with the, getting the uh, images distally with the CRM. But so we've, um, we got the fracture span. Okay. And then uh, trying to close, re keep it close, reduced to like, get the nail in, but it just looks like it was so too displaced. So um, ended up uh, opening up and uh, basically made like a two centimeter incision and then put a, a little clamp on it. Yeah. Right there. Right. Yes. And, you, and you started off again, you used, you used a, uh, one of the sharp reamers on drill. So you, you reamed, you opened the canal approximately and you put your guide wire down um you use the uh the finger i forgot the name of the tool what, what was it called one more time i call it finger <laughs> i don't know if it's if i've it's, heard you use that i've heard that, that term before i've used it one time uh on a difficult i think a sub choke we used it for um and you know use that to help get the guide wire down and now uh, you made your incision and are uh clamping this fracture getting so. imaging yeah, imaging was a little bit of a struggle there, but this, you got to, you ream, but you can use either a seven or eight millimeter diameter nail for this. And um, so we reamed to, uh, um, for her up to an eight and a half reamer, and then okay. uh, this is an eight millimeter diameter nail. So we're just putting our, our you know, fixing it proximally here. And I just used two, uh, I think two screws on, on most of these. And then distally is a little bit of a challenge. I mean, historically you'd have to do perfect circles and then you're going right where the radial nerve is and the ulnar and the median nerve and it's a problem and you're still there, but this particular implant has this guide and you can't really see it's carbon, but it's really helpful. So fix, fix it distally. And then that's me injecting some graft um, into the fracture site uh, percutaneously. For our, our distal, is the, the guy that goes straight down to, does, does, does it work with some blunt dissection and it goes down to bone to avoid hitting any nerves or anything? 
That's exactly. There's a little cannula, um, a metal cannula that goes through those little slots. And so I just make like a small portal incision and then really bluntly dissect down to bone and then make sure the cannula is all the way down on bone. Um, Cause you, yeah, that is a little bit of uh, tiger, tiger country there. Right. Well, um, well, Dr. Sears, this has been, you know, I, I learned a lot for sure. Definitely on uh, nailing proximal humerus fracture. I think it's been a great talk. Um, really appreciate you coming on the podcast and taking the time out of your day to come on and go through your cases and talk about different techniques. So, um, uh, and different, um, you know, approaches and how you set everything up and the imaging. And we talked about biomechanics, we talked about some anatomy as well, as well as just some operative pearls. So really appreciate that. And we always, at the end of our talks, we always, get, you know, give away for our, for our guests to, to have listeners follow you. If you have any social media that you want them to follow you on, go for it. If you have a site you want people to check you out on or, um, you know, anything that you want to share, you can totally go for it. Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a little bit of a obscure uh, topic, but, you know, um, but this has been a real light bulb moment, part of my uh, post training career where I really, this has really changed my practice to nail has. So I really appreciate uh, having me on to talk about it. Um, and what a great forum you have. Um, I do have a website. It's, um, uh, it's denvershoulderandelbow.com. But if anyone would like this, um, talk, uh, or want to talk about any cases or anything, my email is BWSERS. So BWSERS at Gmail, please email me for any reason. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, um, just happy to be here. So thanks for spending the time with me. It's been fun. Oh, it's been great. And for those that are listening, uh, please go and leave us a review. Let us know how much you enjoyed this episode talking about uh, proximal humorous or humoral nailing. And uh, uh, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. And we will see you all next week uh, for the next episode. Thank you all for listening to that episode. We talked about nailing proximal humerus fractures. Like I said, we went at the beginning of the episode. Uh, we really went into a lot of depth. Dr. Sears did a great job. He went over this case discussions. Um, you know, he, he did a great job, you all. So please, if this is your first time listening, hit the subscribe button and tell one friend. And please go and follow us and subscribe on YouTube. We are trying to reach a thousand subscribers. So please go and do that. And we will see you all shortly.